Hello and welcome to episode number 56 of the Agronovations podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agronovations podcast has been published onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on June 29th, 2009. For this episode of the Agroinnovations podcast, we're joined by Peter Donovan. Peter Donovan is a founding member of the Soil Carbon Coalition. Uh, the Soil Carbon Coalition is a group that seeks to advance the practice and spread awareness of the opportunity of turning atmospheric carbon into soil organic matter. Peter Donovan, welcome to the Agroinnovations podcast. Thanks, Frank. Peter, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about your professional background before your involvement with the Soil Carbon Coalition. Well, my background is fairly wide-ranging, I guess. I've I've spent a lot of my younger years herding sheep and cattle, working on farms, ranches, and also in the woods in Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. And my professional training, as it were, is in music and languages. But in the 19, early 1990s, I became very interested in resource management that works with the biospheric processes such as water cycling, carbon cycling, solar energy flow, and uh, community dynamics, and got some training in holistic management and have done a lot of reporting on people, and that's on the website managingholes.com. And a few years ago, I became very interested in the climate issue as an opportunity rather than as a problem. Okay, now Peter, you've recently written a great two-part article, which is available on the Soil Carbon Coalition website. And by the way, uh, as always, we will be linking to your website both Managing Holes uh, and the Soil Carbon Coalition in the show notes for this episode. So people will be able to click through and find out more about some of the things you're talking about, including this great article that you've written entitled, Can Policy Build Soil Carbon? Now in that article you write, the problem with carbon is that it's not a problem. It's a cycle. And you also write about the historical origins of climate science. Can you talk about how the origins the historical origins of uh, climate science, and as you argue, they're rooted in the study of non-living systems, have affected our modern-day understanding of climate change? Well, sure. Our, you know, the, the understanding of the greenhouse, so-called greenhouse effect dates back to uh, Fourier, Joseph Fourier and um, John Tyndall, 19th century scientists, who realized that there was a greenhouse envelope and that carbon dioxide and water vapor, for example, were greenhouse gases that trapped heat, that had optical properties that trapped heat. Otherwise, the planet would be unlivable. And in the 1890s, of course, as is pretty well known, Svante Arrhenius, a Swedish chemist, calculated the effect of increasing carbon dioxide levels on the Earth's temperature 
and he spent almost a year making those calculations. And these were the days before computers, of course. And his calculations actually hold up extraordinarily well today. But he discounted the role of the biological carbon cycle in changes in atmospheric carbon comp composition. And that understanding, I think, has persisted to the present day a hundred, over 100 years. In the 1960s, it was common to see papers written by climate scientists that were totally discounting of any biological factors of climate. And in the 1970s, Bert Bolin and Wally Broker and some of those um, people who became very influential in the 80s and 90s in terms of their observations and theories about the climate system, they realized the, the importance of the biosphere. But even today, I would say that the biosphere is regarded as a disturbance or a feedback. For example, if the temperature warms, the tundra will melt and emit all sorts of greenhouse gases. So it's a feedback or a disturbance rather than the primary driver, which um, it's pretty clear from Vernadsky's work and Lovelock's work that that's, the biosphere is the primary driver of our atmosphere. And that's why it's so different from that of Venus or Mars. And the idea of technological fixes, we can somehow fix this with technology, I think arrives from that background. That the basic operations of biology basically are tend to be ignored by the IPCC, for example, although I think that's gradually changing. The conversation is maturing. But as Lovelock points out, we have a intergovernmental panel on climate change, which is mainly physical scientists, and then we have the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which is basically biological science. And we've divided up the world's problems between those two bodies, you might say. In your article, you also make a pretty clear distinction between what you call divergent and convergent solutions. In the article, you say pushing opportunities into convergent problem-solving systems is like running a stump through a rock crusher or a boulder through a sawmill. It may work a little bit, but mainly you just make a mess. Can you talk about this distinction between convergent and divergent solutions and how it relates to global warming? Okay. It was E.F. Schumacher who made that distinction in his book, The Guide for A Guide for the Perplexed. And he observed that in matters of technology, we tend to come up with solutions that may converge on one or two best possibilities. Example he uses is a bicycle. If, you're, if the problem is to figure out a, a human-powered, wheeled vehicle, the solution the whole world has, come, has converged upon is the bicycle, the two-wheeled vehicle. There are unicycles and tricycles, but they are far, far outnumbered by bicycles in terms of the miles ridden and 
number of users and so forth. But a, a divergent solution is easier seen in living systems, for example, education or how to stabilize society. There are many different solutions. They may have common elements, but they're, they don't tend to converge in the same way that uh, solutions for physical problems tend to. And as Schumacher noted, divergent solutions are characteristic of living systems. So that relates to how our policy needs to work. We're we're basically we tend to we tend to view policy matters as converging on best solutions or perhaps a small number of best practices. Whereas if you're managing complex living systems in locally varying environments, there tend to be a lot of different solutions that might be optimal. And so it's a mistake to assume that they, those can be driven down to one or six or you know so many best practices. Yeah, and when you talk about divergent solutions, it makes me think of just how much diversity there is in nature. Uh, and if you actually look at the word diversity and divergence, uh, it seems that that's what you're getting at. Um, you know, organisms have developed many, many different strategies to deal with similar problems, having access mm -hmm. to nitrogen or phosphorus or, uh, you know, being able to be exposed to the sun or not getting too hot or not getting too cold and having enough water. There's all kinds of different ways in nature that we observe that organisms have found to deal with this. Yeah, and our evolutionary theories also account for that in some way. We have variability in selection, and they tend to result in, as you say, divergent solutions. And that's what makes the biosphere robust and resilient, uh, the fact that there is so much diversity in it. You know, obviously some species go extinct. In fact, most species that have ever existed have gone extinct, but life has marched on, and the reason for that is probably because divergent solutions are the norm in, in biosystems. I wonder if you're familiar with the work of John Michael Greer. In his book, The Long Descent, he makes a similar distinction, though not identical, uh, and he frames it in the context of predicaments rather than problems. He says, we often look at things like poverty, illness, and death as problems, but according to John Michael Greer, these things are predicaments, and climate change is also a predicament. In his book, uh, The Long Descent, John Michael Greer writes, predicaments don't stop being predicaments just because we decide to treat them as problems. There are still plenty of challenges we can't solve and be done with. We have to just respond to them and live with them. Uh, what is your thinking on uh, that quote and the concept by John Michael Greer? Yeah, it sounds it sounds very similar to a lot of. Um, well, I've, I've I appreciate it and I recognize it as fundamentally similar to what Schumacher said and what I think we are up against in terms of this. As other people have called this a wicked problem of climate change, in the sense that its solution might appear to depend on how you frame the problem. And if you frame the problem differently, the solution appears to be different. 
or the solutions. But yeah, it's it's not a it's not something that we can just apply a technical fix to. Yeah, one of the uh, things that you've been a critic of, and you know, have I think that that article that you've written is some of the best uh, thinking on the issue that I've seen. Is this approach that policy systems can somehow deal with this what what Greer calls predicament of climate change? Now you are not uh, necessarily a big advocate of the concept that current policy systems can in fact implement a broad-scale enhancement of soil organic matter. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, first of all, I want to say that I think policy work is very important. It tends to lead to a maturing of the conversations and different different perceptions by people who are influential, who have positional power and so forth. And these do influence other people. And more than that, these these efforts to change policy to um, make emissions trading schemes account for soil carbon, for example, even as an offset, they tend to destabilize the situation, destabilize our thinking, which I think is a very good thing, very necessary in order to adapt to the predicament that we're faced with. But I do think that our traditional policy systems have some rather striking limitations. It took them a while, for example, to modernize agriculture in the 20th century, and that was a combination effort of USDA, uh, various um, chemical companies, input companies, uh, equipment companies, large economic interests that sought to uh, modernize agriculture, simplify it, and standardize it. And, of course, there was tremendous resistance to this in all sorts of parts of the country, but over the course of the century, there there's uh, huge changes, transformational changes in agriculture. I think it's very, very difficult for institutions to push it the other way and... In that, I'm not saying that we need to go back to the past in any sense. There's a lot of new innovations, a lot of new thinking that we need to take advantage of. But our policies and institutions are much better at, for example, straightening a river than reintroducing meanders. And it's much cheaper to straighten a a river than to reintroduce meanders. Uh, Policy, particularly policy that goes through Congress and the whole committee process and all that, tends to favor um, compromise solutions and they tend not to be optimal in every local situation and they tend to chop off the best and maybe the worst and we tend to get sort of an average thing. For example, Rules about conservation tillage, as as long as you have 30% ground cover, that qualifies as conservation tillage, and then you can get an incentive payment based on that. What about going from 30 to 100? You know, it's just not there. And we're, we're, our policy.
policy systems are better adapted at treating agriculture, for example, as an input-output system. You do these practices, you 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 pass. If you don't do these practices, or if you do these bad practices, you fail. And it's very difficult for institutions or agencies or programs to codify or simplify the vast array of interlocking systems of management practices that really successful biological farmers and foresters use. You can't you can't um, reduce those to a set of rules because in many cases they're based upon very close observation, timing, behavior of animals, those kinds of things that are that are very hard to quantify and specify. So I think in order to diversify, um, complexify agriculture, it's going to take a, a different approach than than policy or regulation or even incentives that are based upon behaviors. But Peter, can't policy reflect, I mean, and we kind of touched on some of this with uh, Frank Van Schelbrook in a previous episode of the podcast, I believe it was episode number 52, and, you know, one of the things that we say is what policy what policies should really be doing is giving those innovative farmers the tools that they need to be successful and to be better resources for their communities. So, I mean, it seems like we could maybe not articulate it, you and I, right now in this little chat that we're having, but we could certainly conceive of a policy that that attempts to do that and perhaps even does it successfully. Can you give me an example? Well, I'm not sure that there are any examples out there, but and I think it's probably the lack of people wanting to, you know, go forward with a policy like that. And, you know, it, it could just be against a lot of big interests. I mean, that's 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 one of the the work that I've done in Bolivia. I mean, that was my whole focus was to try to get innovative farmers and people who are in the field who are actually doing what you're saying that they're doing, which is true, you know, support and resources that they need. Uh, but that's just it's just not the the current paradigm that people have. So so speaking at about these people, and let me just take a quote from what you've written. You you write. Far from the centers of institutional power in big science, some alternative farmers and graziers on several continents have been putting a developing understanding of living systems at the center of their search for sustainability, lower input costs, and a better quality of life. Can you talk a little bit about these people and the advances that they've made? Sure. Um, you know, Carl Sace in Australia who's one of the principal developers of the pasture cropping method of seeding uh, annual oat crops, for example, into a perennial grass pasture that's dormant and using animals, of course, to manage the pasture, not during the grain crop, of course, but getting, getting a, in a sense, a double season production while keeping the ground covered. He's found that it He's doubled soil carbon in about a decade. He's uh, vastly lowered his input costs. He's got about a thousand farmers or more trying to adapt his 
innovations to their own operations. And this is in a, in a very, very real sense of bottom-up leadership. He's had some scientific help from people like Christine Jones and a few others, but uh, the the motivation and the incentive came from him, his experiences in life, and his trying to deal with his problems of high input costs and less than optimal production. And in very many cases, it's it's hard to think of how you can support that with you know resources programs because a person like Carl says is sort of out in the lead, and how how can you support that if you're not part of that innovation? What you what you might do is. Um, inadvertently suppress some aspects of it or make them harder to uh, understand. Well, I can think of a way that you could support it. If there was a government program trying to support a person like Call, they could bring him on. And, you know, I'm just talking here, but here's a possibility. They could bring him on as a consultant, uh, you know, pay him some money and send him around to give workshops and seminars to different farmers who are going broke around Australia so that they can get a little bit of advice and incentive on how they can implement a system like that. Now, it might uh, catch in 10% of the cases, but it still definitely gives him a little bit more resources to go out and, uh, you know, do outreach with people. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um fairly unlikely that existing institutions will take on those kinds of roles, but... Uh, agreed. Fairly unlikely, but still, I mean, like I said, we can conceive of policies that could do so and be successful. It's just not part yeah. of... The, not. It's just not part of the paradigm. So, right. um, go well, ahead. That actually runs right into the strategy that we're proposing, the slow carbon challenge, where you do recognize the innovators and reward them with recognition and possibly uh, other types of rewards as well. But the point is to give incentive and to say that these people are in the lead. It's a, it's a shift of leadership, and therefore it's a shift in power. Well, yeah, and that's that was that is uh, one of my coming questions here. Uh, one of the things you say is, if we want to find out how fast a human can run 100 meters, should we convene a panel of experts to make predictions? Should we do a literature search on how fast six-year-olds can run? Should we build computer models? Uh, those are good questions. And what what is that? I mean, what are you leading up to with with those kinds of questions? Well, the obvious way that we normally find out what the possibilities are for a person running 100 meters is that we run a race. And, But in terms of scientific stuff, we're trying to predict what the effect of a 1 or 2 degree or 4 degree warming might be and spend millions and millions of dollars on those kinds of predictions. the question we should be asking is how does the carbon cycle function and the prize competition or the race if you will to see how fast 
land managers can turn atmospheric carbon into soil carbon is an exploration of that possibility. It would be a very direct, um, very high leverage exploration of that possibility and inquiry into how the carbon cycle functions here, there, and way over there in specific areas. How do you see the details and implementation of, well, what you call the soil carbon challenge, or you also call it the World Carbon Cup? How, how's that going to play out? Um, I think you've described it as kind of a participatory uh, process, and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get this idea to catch on. Tell us what we need to know about how we can make this happen. Well, we're definitely looking for partnerships. Um, funding suggestions and advice on all fronts. Um, it's it's not a it's a common strategy in technology. The X Prize Foundation, uh, Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic in search of a prize. There's there's been all sorts of uh, prizes for the last few hundred years, if not more, that have provided an incentive for people to do what was sometimes considered impossible. I think we're in the same situation today with. Uh, trying to correct the carbon cycle on land and with this huge soil carbon pool that we still have. We need to know what's possible. We need to change the question from is it possible to how fast can it happen in particular places. And so that's, that's a different different strategy than than hoping that Bali or Copenhagen or some successor to the Kyoto Protocol or that Waxman Markey can make this happen because I, I think there, there are deep uh, deep doubts that we can have about the effectiveness of offset pavements, for example, in the long term. They may be helpful in the short term, but over the long term, are they going to be able to transform agriculture into a biologically enhancing system. I have my doubts. Not only that, but are they actually going to be effective in mitigating in the effects of global climate change? I mean, that's what they're designed to do. Or are they really just right. designed to create another big commodity market for Wall Street brokers? Mm-hmm. I mean, which is it? Yeah, I'll just leave that question open because it's it's very difficult People talk and talk about markets for ecosystem services, but in order to have an effective market, you have to have buyers or customers for one thing. And markets aren't very well created by legislation or top-down rules. They, the cost and the benefit need to be reasonably close together. With soil carbon, for example, the costs of the loss of soil carbon are primarily borne locally by fire departments, weed control departments, road departments, water districts and utilities, and local economies in general. And one of the things that we could look at with a challenge is to make trials of connecting those providers of water holding capacity in terms of soil organic matter and the, benef- the potential beneficiaries, city water departments, for example. You can make a lot of very 
very direct connections there that aren't currently being made very often. And the purpose of a business, says Peter Drucker, is to create a customer. And in order to have markets and ecosystem services, we need to create customers. And that's that's a, not just a financial transaction. It has to do with values and relationships and perceptions and experience. Well, Peter Donovan, um, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. These are some good, tough questions, and I personally think the idea of a soil carbon challenge or a world carbon cup is a great idea and i hope that a lot of people will get on board with this at every level and for those people who are listening whether you just maybe have a little bit of time to volunteer to help peter and his soil carbon coalition promote this world carbon uh challenge or if you're maybe a big philanthropic organization and want to help fund it and get it off the ground, then, you know, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate it. That is the end of my interview with Peter Donovan, and I'd like to thank Peter once again for joining us. Links to Peter's websites, including the Soil Carbon Coalition, will be on the show notes for this episode, which can be found at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. And this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. You can learn more about that at creativecommons.org. And there's also a link on the agroinnovations.com slash podcast webpage where you can click through and uh, learn more about the podcast license for this and all episodes of the show. We are also on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations, and that page is updated maybe twice at the most three times a week, obviously not quite as frequently as some other Twitter users who are updating oftentimes once every five minutes, but I feel that that is sufficient two or three times a week for our purposes. So you can visit that page, twitter.com slash agroinnovations, and follow us. I release interesting quotes and some news stories of interest sometimes. And also, as always, the links to the most recent episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are published via our Twitter feed pretty much as soon as the podcast gets published. I am also on Facebook, and my name is Frank Aragona on Facebook, so you can search for me there. And you can add me on Facebook if you like. If you want to know more about agricultural innovations, you can check us out on our website, which is agroinnovations.com. And there's a lot of great up-to-date content on there. We have some image galleries that you can look at. Uh, You want to learn more about the services that we provide to our clients. If you are someone who would have need of those services, whether they be land management and data management, linking up information technology with agriculture and forestry and the like. You can click on our services link on our webpage, 
or you can visit our projects page where we have some video, some pictures, uh, we have some project blogs that are updated regularly. So please visit our website and take a look. And of course, if you want to get in contact with us about the podcast, you can email me at podcast at agroinnovations.com or we have a contact link on our website that you can click on and get more information there. Uh, there will not be an episode of the podcast published next week. Let me remind our listeners that we have a forum thread for every episode of the podcast, a link of which will be posted on the show notes for this episode on the Global Swadeshi Network. And that has started to get a little bit of participation from listeners and Global Swadeshi members out there, which I greatly appreciate. Uh, you can check out the last comment thread uh, at Global Swadeshi, and the link for that is on episode number 55, which was the pesticides, consumer pesticide list with Amy Rosenthal, and there was some great commentary on that that you can read more on on the Global Swadeshi Network. As I said, the link are on the show notes for episode number 55, and hopefully folks will comment on this episode as well. And as I said, the link for that will be on the show notes for this episode. This is the agroinnovations.com podcast. I'm Frank Aragona. Thanks so much for joining us. Saludos. <laughs>